Hello and welcome to the Lowdown and Insider's Look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. It can be painful to embrace the true history of your country, which is why teaching history is often rooted in fear. Fear that if people learn the truth, that is, the ways certain groups have dominated others, they'll see the gap between their nation's vaunted ideals and the reality of life for many citizens. Fear that the dominant groups may lose their privileges or even have to relinquish their wealth. Witness our own country's present resistance to teaching the long history of slavery. My guest today was born and raised in Palestine during the British Mandate and the beginning of Israel as an independent Jewish state. As a child, she grew up among masses of displaced Jews from many different countries, all carrying different kinds of trauma, all encouraged to view themselves as brothers and affirm the mythical wonder of building their young homeland. Upon returning to Israel as an adult, however, she forced herself to confront the trauma of the people who shared that homeland, the Palestinians, and their displacement, which they call the Nakba. Today we're talking with Linda Dittmar, an author and former professor of literature and film at UMass Boston. Her latest book is Tracing Homelands, Israel, Palestine, and the Claims of Belonging. Linda Dittmar, thank you so much for talking with us on The Lowdown. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a special privilege. I love the Cape, and I'm glad to to be on your program. Well, thank you. So your great-grandparents emigrated to Ottoman-controlled Palestine from the Pale, the bloodlands of Eastern Europe, in the 1890s. Can you talk a bit about them? Uh, It was uh, an immigration. It's considered the first immigration to what was then Ottoman Palestine in the 1880s, actually. And uh, they were basically fleeing anti-Semitism there in the way that much larger number of Jews from that area came to the United States or started moving westward from the Ukraine, Russia, and the adjacent countries out there, Poland including. So it was a period of great uh, difficulty for Jewish life in that part of the world, and anybody who could try to move and immigrate out of there. Uh, People who came to Ottoman Palestine really didn't think of it as immigration per se. Um, It was really the whole issue of borders was not defined at that point. And people were able to move and simply come to another country. However, the bigger question would be then, what do you do in your new country? And many American Jews, immigrants to America, tried their way in the urban areas like New York and elsewhere through commerce and labor, urban labor of one sort or another. But in Palestine, the biggest opportunities were actually in farming. And the Baron uh, Edmund Rothschild was instrumental in buying a lot of land that uh, Jews could settle in. And my grandparents settled in the village of Metula, which is on the border of Lebanon. And the land was indeed bought by Rothschild and given to the farmers, a small 
community of farmers who settled in Metula. The problem was that he bought the land from an absentee landlord who lived, a Greek guy, Greek Christian, who lived in the port city of Akko, just a little north of Haifa. And the people who lived on the land were tenant farmers, Druze, and actually 600 families, as far as my research shows, um, were lost their homeland when Rothschild bought the land for the Jews to, to settle for my family and the other families. And that is really representative of a lot of what happened during the early settlement. Land was bought fair and square, very clearly, and, and Jewish families settled it, sometimes peacefully near some Palestinian village, and sometimes with the original owners elect, uh, ejected in, in one way or another. Mm. Yeah, so that is kind of the background of my own family, most immediately there. Some uh, cousins or children of cousins are still living in, in that town, mm. village. As a child growing up, you write about experiencing a lot of tension, Tensions between Ashkenazi Jews and displaced Jews from Morocco, Iraq, Yemen, and other places. The tensions of being bombed and during the war of 1948. But but what were your attitudes at that time toward, and, and what did you know about the existing Palestinian Arab population? So during that time, I was 10 years old. So what I knew was extremely limited, especially because my family did not have discussions of that in front of me. I know that they were very deeply involved personally, but they, their uh, policy was to keep the children away from that and let us make our own mind as we grow up. So I was not in any way taught, let alone indoctrinated by my parents. All that I know is what I saw. Now, there was a Palestinian village within viewing distance from our house, I would say half a mile. And some of the land between the village and our house was farmed by Palestinians. So before the war, I saw them as part of the normal environment. It so happened that our house, which was in Tel Aviv, was built out of town on the outskirts of town, and that's why we were near the village of Sumel. And in fact, uh, in the winter, sometimes a car would get stuck in the mud because there were no roads there, and Palestinian men and my father together would help extract the car from the mud. And the, anybody who had the car would be Jewish, not a Palestinian person to begin with anyway. So my sense was of a very easy relationship between us and the people of Sumel. But one day, they simply disappeared. The village was empty. Now, from what I read about it, they left voluntarily. They were not pushed out because they could see the trouble coming elsewhere. And they first moved to another nearby village, and then, of course, they were expelled, literally, from the other village. But my own sense was that I did not see any fighting in relation to Sumel. All I saw was a lively village at one point and an empty village at another, 
and only knowing that it's because the war, whatever that meant to me as a child, was very unclear. What was clear was that we were bombed from the air. Uh, there were air raids all the time. And in fact, my mother was watering the garden one time and almost was hit by shrapnel. So we knew that, and we also knew that my mother was volunteering in a um, in a military hospital, which was an enormous act of dedication, I think, from her, because working with wounded people is so horrendous, all these young people. Um, and my dad had to, to do some military service. He was too old and not in good shape enough to be a fighter, but he was doing guard duty on the border of uh, Jaffa. But what we saw beyond that was the incredible mass of refugees that were coming into the country as soon as the British left, and of course during the war. The worst were the Jewish refugees who had lived in Jaffa all along and had to leave Jaffa, which was adjacent to Tel Aviv, a, a city, and they had to leave it during the fighting, which was very, very rough fighting in Haifa. And there was no arrangement for them. They simply squatted in every space that was available for them in town. And then there were, of course, the refugees from Europe who came. Um, many of them were invisible um, numbers on their tattoos, on their arms from the uh, concentration camps. They were the survivors, incredibly traumatized people. And they all had to learn to speak Hebrew. And I'm thinking about these parents, their children with me were all speaking Hebrew. And the parents were barely able to talk to their own children, were stammering over the new words that the Hebrew language was prescribed literally to all of us. I mean, there was tremendous emphasis on speaking Hebrew. So, you know, I'm thinking of just the pain of grandparents who only spoke Yiddish or Russian or whatever who were hardly able to communicate with their grandchildren. Um, and, you know, I talk about it in the book. There were food lines. There was no food. Terrible scarcity. And also because the country and all of us were such a small community, everybody knew somebody. So, you know, if a village and a kibbutz would be attacked, everybody knew about it. If a soldier died, somebody or other would know the family. You know, there was never a sense that this was far away from us. It was really a feeling like we are all in that war together beyond any question. And yet the togetherness was challenged by enormous differences among us. I mean, there was nothing to to connect a Jew from Poland with a Jew from Yemen. You know, even their rituals were different, their foods were different, their prayers were different. So, you know, there was a sense that we are all supposed to be Jews together, but looking at one another and hearing the accents and languages of one another, it was hard to believe we are all one people at mm -hmm. the time. I think Israel over the time, over the decades, has been amalgamating us into a unified country much more, more divided by ethnicity and social class and politics than by national origin, per se. But at the time, it was very, very hard. Mm. I mean, America never dealt with that kind of challenge on that scale of immigration. You always had a trickle of immigrants of one kind or another, 
some years, like in the 20s, I believe, there was a rise of nativism against immigrants and violence. And now clearly there's an objection to immigration, but it's nothing, nothing. Like, can you imagine if within 50 years, all of the United States, not 50, within five years, all of the United States became 60% Haitian or Latino or something like that, within five years rather than over this decade and more on that decade. So it was a challenge, yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the buried history of the Palestinian Nakba and other inconvenient truths. My guest yeah. is former UMass Boston professor Linda Dittmar. Her latest book <laughs> is Israel, Palestine, and the Claims of Belonging. So... As a result of the recent war between Israel and Hamas, many people have heard the term Nakba for the first time. Can you tell us what it means? Well, originally, I gather it was invented or created. It means literally catastrophe. And as far as I understand it, it was first made known by a Greek man, I think from maybe Lebanon, I forget, and he was actually referring to the terrible defeat of the Arab armies that attacked Israel, young Israel, in 1948. That means Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, and even some volunteers from Morocco. And maybe others I don't know about, but these I know about. But actually, the word came into use by the Palestinians, in relation to their own expulsion from Israel during the war of 1948, or we can also call it the ethnic cleansing that was happening at that point. And some villages were uh, actually, there occurred violence, and even we know of some massacres in a few villages, and some of them, maybe, I, I don't know the numbers, I don't know to say a few or not, but that's sort of my impression. But in addition to that, the reputation of the massacre would then go to other villages and people would leave regardless. So the first massacre that we all know about and was never denied occurred in the village of Dir Yassin, which was just outside of Jerusalem. And the reason it was known is also because the people who remained alive from that one were paraded in Jerusalem afterwards, which was particularly horrible. But more recently, a documentary film came out. It, sh it showed on Sundance uh, Network and can be found on your internet called Tantura, where uh, people who participated in that fighting confessed to there having been a massacre. So there were some. I don't know the number, but there were. And these are the ones that are on record, at least, and on public record. And the result would be that other villages nearby would also know the danger, know it's coming, and leave. In a book I read recently, it was it's written that it was a very common tactic to choose one or two people and shoot them, and then the rest of the village would run away. Again, you know, testimonies are sometimes debated, but I did read that, and I do believe that. Um, there is a wonderful 
novella written by an Israeli writer of that period called Chirbat Chiz'ah, which is available uh, in English, and you can get it through the internet. And that describes just a small um, unit of soldiers sitting on a hilltop waiting for the order to go down to the village and empty it, and then the process of emptying the village. And this is written by an Israeli writer who fought in that war in 48. And actually a movie, his name is Eshishar, Samech Ishar, and, um, and a movie was actually made of that novella for the Israeli television in the early 70s, but was quickly suppressed. So while the word Nakba is now heard a lot in the United States, it was going around among the Palestinians for several decades, and it was, though not spoken by the Israelis, and I certainly did not grow up knowing that word. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get to know it till, I don't know, maybe the, the, the 90s, maybe even the late 80s, but certainly the 90s. So, and it was even illegal to, to uh, observe the Nakba Day, which Palestinians have tried to do a kind of occasion called the Land Day, land day in a way that some Native Americans nowadays go to Plymouth on Thanksgiving to register their own mourning of their own heritage here in Western Massachusetts. So let me ask you a question. You, The book is about your history, but it's also largely about a project that you had with your partner, whose name is Deborah. And yeah. the two of you went... Starting, I think, around 2005, the two of you went all over Israel, and this was not an easy process, trying to find and document and map many, many Palestinian villages which are no longer in existence. Tell me why it was so important for you to do this painful work. It was horrendously painful, and actually, I told about to Deborah about it in the early 90s, and for some 10 years refused to do it. She wanted to go, she's a landscape photographer and really wanted, not Jewish, and she wanted to go and do that, and I refused. Um, I think it was for me an act of confession, of apology, uh, of standing witness that I eventually felt compelled to do. And the time when I felt that urge occurred actually when we were innocently traveling on a road that on the map was described as a scenic road. And in the northern side of that road, which was very beautifully forested, were occasional stones that looked like tombstones and were marked in some way. And I asked her to stop, let's see what they were. And they turned out to be memorial stones for the communities who donated money for that forestation by the Jewish National Fund. So there would be uh, members of the community of this and that place in Romania, survivors, or a synagogue in Canada, you know, different communities who contributed money. Maybe some of the listeners to the program contributed that money. And and it was a very sad 
and sobering sight. And it was evening, late afternoon, so the sun was coming down and the shadows made it even more sobering. But as it became evening, I also saw to the right side, that is south of that road, uh, an empty land without the trees because the forest ended. And beyond that, in the far distance, were lights coming from something else. And I realized that something else was the occupied territories and that the empty land that we passed was the edge of the Jewish-owned land of the Green Line and no man's land, and beyond that, the, the occupied territories and maybe even the town of Jenin. And the awareness of what their history is like and what our history is like just on two sides of the road was so painful and so I mean, it really cut into my heart. And it was at that point that I realized we both suffered terribly. And we were both dispossessed people, essentially. We in our way and they in their way. Yes, we are now in Israel, we Israelis, but we are dispossessed people too. And are trying to find a foothold in Israel. And as you know today, what a dangerous foothold that is. And meanwhile, the Palestinians lost their lands of many hundreds of years and are now also trying to have a foothold. So for me, it was a necessity, an apology, uh, the kind of thing one does on the Day of Atonement to acknowledge my role in their, uh, in their disposition and that my flourishing as an Israeli uh, is at a cost to them. And my sense was that a restitution is needed. I'm not a politician. I, I'm not prescribing that. But another thing that was very keen in my mind that would not have happened 30 years earlier probably is awareness of the role of the truth and reconciliation hearings in South Africa. And my sense is that truth saying, however painful and unpopular it might be, is necessary if we ever have peace. So that's basically, it was very painful and hard for me. Uh, the number of destroyed villages is in debate, but some people say 350, some say 500. I, I stay with the most often cited number of 450, and we found about 40, which is about 10%, uh, which is nothing next to what there was, but it's just about impossible to find it now. You tell us that on a certain, at a certain point in your quest to locate villages, the feeling that your work might be considered a betrayal of Israel mm -hmm. weighed heavily on you. And then yep. you found an organization called Zachrot, which had a similar mission. Can you talk a little bit about Zachrot and how they helped you and what they do? Yeah, they're wonderful, um, but they've gone through many, um, I don't know, avatars or conditions. Um, but they started, the office was near my parents' house in the heart of Tel Aviv, basically. And at that point, they were locating Palestinian villages, at least somewhat, basically with the help of survivors of that village and leading tours to those villages. 
and the tours were always led by a Jewish person and a Palestinian person, and the Palestinian would be able to talk about the history, his family or her family, in that particular village. They were very, very moving and powerful tours, and we'd go meet by bus and go to that place. There would be always a bus full of, I don't know, 30 or so Jewish people primarily who would come to learn about it. At the time, there were no maps available uh, to show Palestinian villages. The names are not in the Israeli maps. If there is still a settlement there, the name has been changed to the Hebrew name. So you wouldn't know that there was a Palestinian village. And they had a collection of little maps copied from the early British maps, which they laminated into uh, plates or uh, something about the size of a placemat. And they gave us that collection of maps, and we went and copied them and laminated our own maps and used those. But they were not sufficiently helpful because while they tell you the name of the village, they don't tell you what you may or may not find in that village. It was a very big problem. Another map that they showed us that they did not give us because it's too rare was a paper map, map carefully folded that belonged to the IDF, to the military. And what was stamped next to each Palestinian village was the word Harus, which means destroy. So you could see which villages they had destroyed, and they, they have that stamp there. But we couldn't use that. But anyway, it still didn't tell us how to find anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I want to ask you one. We're coming to the end of our time. and yeah. I want to ask you one last question, and that is the present war between Israel and Hamas has divided people around the world. Do you yes. feel that criticism of Israel amounts to hatred of Jews. Is there a line of, of is there yeah. a line you draw, an inner feeling you have? How can we best talk about what's going on right now? Yeah, it is heartbreaking, but I think manipulative and weaponizing to use anti Semitism in this way. I think one can agree or not agree with the military policy of trying to destroy Hamas. That is a very understandable debate and disagreement about what's good for Israel and at what price. Uh, some people are 100% pacifists, some people are 100% militaristic, and there are many people in between. But that, in my mind, has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, any more than liking or not liking Jewish cooking, <laughs> or whatever, you know, uh, Jewish liturgy. I mean... Being Jewish is one thing, and fighting Hamas is a totally separate issue. It's a military question. It's a tactical question. It has to do with Israeli internal politics and military judgment. As people, I hope, know, there are big divisions inside Israel about that. There were even bigger divisions before that war about the policies of the government. And criticizing Israel, uh, Jews, for supporting uh, the Palestinians. And I, I know very few who actually support Hamas, but many are dismayed about what's happening to Palestinian citizens. It's like criticizing 
somebody who's talking about racism for hating America and wanting America destroyed. I mean, it's just a totally, it's completely legitimate, in my opinion, to criticize Israeli policy and to criticize the military. But that has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, in my opinion. Okay, I think we're going to leave it there. And um, I know that a lot of people agree with you. And I want to thank you well, for your... Well, some do it, some don't, <laughs> I think. But, but, uh, but I hope that the people who agree with me... I mean, what happened at Harvard and MIT and UPenn is an example of that, yes. really. Yeah. My guest today has been literature and film professor Linda Dittmar. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Tracing Homelands was recently published by Olive Branch Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the painful process of achieving peace. One interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.